This podcast contains explicit language and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Mind Over Manhood, discussions on what it means to be a man in the 21st century. I'm here with my wife today, Rachel Fredericks. How's it going? It's going. Good. So I have asked you on this podcast because my last three episodes have been men's perspective, which is appropriate given that this is a podcast that talks about men and men's experiences. But it occurs to me, and maybe maybe it's showing that it's such a late uh, epiphany, but... Being men implicitly involves having relationship with women. Mm. And a big part of this podcast, and what I hope makes it important, is that within the past 20 or 25 years, the playbook for men's interactions with women has changed. The things that were once okay to say to women, the things that were once okay to do to women are suddenly not anymore. Hmm. Now, you and I have not had to date around in the past (laughs) 10 years. So there's obviously a lot in that sphere that we can't speak to as much as maybe someone who is single right now. But Hmm. I know, having been your spouse and enjoying the past 10 years with you, that you have not been immune from the toxic effects of masculinity. Yeah. And I'd like to talk to you about that. All right. So in our past 10 years of marriage, I'm curious. Now, I don't know if I've ever asked you this before. How has your understanding of men changed? Mm-hmm. From where we were when we were just barely out of our teenage years <laughs> to where we are now. Yeah. So we were married when we were 20 years old, right? And That's right. Yes, that checks out. Okay, great. Good. (laughs) Um, For those who don't know, (laughs) married when we were 20 and uh, I had just turned 20, a lot of what I understood about men and uh, the relationship between men and women, specifically, right, heterosexual men and women mm-hmm. um, is stuff that I learned before we got married stuff that I learned growing up things that I was taught to be careful about uh, whether explicitly or uh, or just through experience really uh, just being a young woman in the world and what were the explicit messages or at least a couple mm-hmm. of them I imagine that you were told a lot of explicit messages about what men were to be mm-hmm. right so I was taught a lot about how men and women ought to be more so though what women ought to be and how men just were hmm. yeah and I guess I can elaborate on that by saying that I was definitely taught, I definitely um, had some of those uh, teachings from 
purity culture, you know, I grew up in a pretty conservative evangelical church and and upbringing, and uh, we weren't part of a big group of teenagers that were signing on to the whole purity uh, movement, but that was certainly a part of my instruction as far as sexual education, but also how how I was just supposed to move about in the world. So those were things like I needed to be careful about the way that I dressed my body. I needed to be careful about the way that I talked to men I and boys at the time, of course. But <laughs> um, I, I needed to be careful about the impression that I was giving to the people around me, men and women, because the way that people looked at me, the way that people assumed things about me was my responsibility. Christian women were meant to be submissive, right? So not too opinionated, not too outspoken, not too loud or harsh or abrasive, not too revealing in their clothing, right? Not too, they shouldn't laugh too much. They shouldn't dance too much. They shouldn't, you know, all these things. Um, because any of that might give the wrong impression to specifically a man. And so there were all these, that, that's a very brief synopsis, but there were all these rules about what I was supposed to be as a woman and, and ways that I needed to protect myself and my image to the world. But the messages that I received about men were usually not things that they needed to work on, if that makes sense. They were things about just how they were, about how men would perceive me, and then the thoughts that that would lead them to think. Because biologically, that is what they were prone to, and biologically, men had needs that had more control over them than they had control over if that makes sense that does make sense yeah so you were you had to be responsible for another human being's behavior absolutely did you feel like that was a lot of pressure from day to day yeah yeah 100 percent. because another part of what it meant to be not just a christian woman but a a woman in our culture, if you if you will. I will. Okay. <laughs> if you want to say that. Um, and I don't think that my... I don't think that it would have been worded that way. In your childhood? Right. What would... How would your well, childhood have worded? Like, not our culture or not... Well, to be... Okay, so when I say to be a woman in our culture, where I'm going with that is... It was still important to be pretty. Right? And mm. to be beautiful and our culture and our society has a certain standard of what that might look like and I was certainly I and my family were were prone to perceiving beauty in that certain way so it was always this double-edged sword where beauty was important and I needed to make sure that I was presenting myself in a way that was um, not only modest, but attractive. Okay. That seems like such a strange duality of living. Mm -hmm. Because I don't know how one could balance 
how do I make sure that men are not aroused by my appearance, mm -hmm. but how do I make sure I'm noticed and appreciated for my beauty? Yes. And, and that was the, the dichotomy. Huh. Mm -hmm. I wonder, like, where, like, I, I wonder how you could even put into words how to separate the two things. If human beings are sexual creatures, how does one appreciate a woman's beauty with no sexual anything to it? Hmm. I can, I can understand admiring someone's fitness or, mm -hmm. or admiring someone's dress. Mm -hmm. But if a woman is beautiful, are we not hardwired to think, hardwired at least to have those reflexes hmm. that that may not necessarily push us mm -hmm. to taking any kind of action, but definitely get the a chemical flowing that would be primal? Hmm. I don't know. I certainly am not the expert on that, I, but I don't think so. I think you can see beautiful things and not be aroused by them, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you can and by arousal, I don't mean like I know full, For you know, sure. yeah, but but you are talking about like a like a a chemical sort of reaction that is not something you have any control over. and and right, beauty is in the eye of the beholder and and people mm. think different things are beautiful. So you as a man, I don't think you have a primal reaction to a beautiful woman just because you are a man, right? Because somebody else who is not attracted to women at all, might see a beautiful woman and see that she is beautiful, but is not going to have that same reaction. That is an excellent point. Thank I'd you. never thought of that. Yeah. Because I, I think that I can appreciate an attractive man, but I have no interest. Yeah. Sexually. Well, look at me learning things look live on a you. podcast. Mm -hmm. Wow. No, not live at all. Recorded not... on a podcast. Well, they don't know that. <laughs> yes, they do. The audience, great. They're, now all my credibility is gone. So not only were my you, learning. Were you saying this was live? I'm going to lose all seven listeners oh. now. Seven. Oh. Do you know how much money I was making off this podcast? I did not realize what a fraud you were. I have made 36 cents on this podcast. I don't even believe that. And I am not going to get that same amount next quarter now. <laughs> I did not make 36 cents. Uh, yep, nope. <laughs> oh. I have access to our bank accounts. <laughs> but one can dream, <laughs> right, can't he? Exactly. Uh, yeah, my, so, so go ahead. So then with with that kind of existence where where it's all on the woman, mm -hmm. where do you draw the line with what men are and are not allowed to do and say to you? Where was there any instruction with how to say to a man, Hey, Buster, you need to <laughs> you need that to That was definitely in my vocabulary. Great, because yeah. that's that's a trump card, obviously. obviously. Hey, Buster, hey Buster. Whenever I go into the rough side of town, I always you know, well first the baseball cap, you turn it backwards. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're always chewing gum. Backpack over only one shoulder. I have no idea what movies you've been watching, but Yeah, and then an epic uh dance fight. Mm. It's anyways. Buster. <laughs> Buster. That's what we're going Hey, with. Buster. You better walk on... Better cut it you out. Cut it. <laughs> <laughs> Uncle Joey on a... <laughs> with the hand motions. <laughs> what are we talking about? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so was there any instruction in your childhood that talked about what what to do in situations where a man was was overreaching his bounds of appropriate behavior. 
I honestly don't know that there was, and I could be wrong about that, of course, because I don't remember every single thing. But I know that once I started experiencing the male gaze, if you were... Um, G-A-Z-E or... G-A-Z-E, yes. Not G-A-Y-S. No. <laughs> I remember when I started experiencing the male G-A-Y-S. No, G-A... They are lovely people. Yes. G-A-Z-E. And, and thinking to myself, okay, this is just how men are. I can respond or I can ignore it. Normally, I choose to ignore it, right? And uh, because that often feels like the safest thing to do. I don't ever remember receiving any kind of instruction about how to respond to that kind of thing, only that it would probably happen. Um, not that things like catcalling or things like uh, inappropriate behavior or whatever would absolutely happen, but I knew from a fairly young age that I would be noticed. I knew that if I were not careful, men could get the wrong idea about what I thought was okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so, you know, when I started going to, to public school, it was seventh grade, and no one's all that attractive in seventh grade. I didn't... Speak for yourself. I was... <laughs> I was gorgeous in seventh uh, grade. Oh, well, okay. Anyway. Um, you didn't know me back then. No, I didn't. <laughs> but you would have remembered if you did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is totally a sidetrack, but I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking back to now the boys in seventh grade and the ones that I thought were cute, and I'm just like, they really weren't. <laughs> so. If they maintained the same level of, like, attraction, like, your memory of them now, that would be a different kind of conversation we'd need to be having. Right. For sure. <laughs> um... Anyway, okay, back on topic. When I started going to public school in seventh grade, I think that I had prepared myself for for certain reactions from my male classmates. One, because I was very shy to begin with, and, and two, because I just wanted to present a very strong exterior. I didn't want to let anybody in. I was very standoffish. Mm. And I, you know, I was asked out, boys did flirt with me, that kind of thing, but I ignored them. I flat out told them no to their face. I, you know, just whatever I could do to just come off as very cold, right? Mm. That didn't change in eighth grade all that much. I remember one time somebody <laughs> accusing me, I'm using air quotes here, um, accusing me as if it were a bad thing. Of being a lesbian because I wouldn't date any of the boys in eighth grade. Because there were boys who wanted to date me and I wouldn't do it. And they said, you must be a lesbian then. And it was supposed to be an insult. <laughs> and the logic isn't really there either because you're not dating any of the girls in eighth grade. Right. There's that also. Yeah. So I don't entirely know what that has to do with, with the point. So you weren't given any guidance from your parents or teachers or powers that existed around you mm -hmm. with how to report sexual assault or sexual harassment. Oh, no. And I wouldn't have thought of it that way. For me, it was, was just a fact that those sort of advances and those sort of looks and those sort of discomforts would just happen. Uh, so when they did happen, I was prepared by simply just 
you know, having having a wall up and just not letting anybody in. Because I because I was also taught that I was much too young to have any sort of relationship with a boy, um, and that those sorts of things led to led to sin, <laughs> led to kind of you know, the ultimate sin, which was sex before marriage. and The even ultimate one. The ultimate. Uh, genocide is bad, but... Well, you're less prone to genocide in high school. So, <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate high school sin? <laughs> all, the, all these statistical tricks you have. <laughs> it, was, it was the most pressing sin at the time, I suppose. <laughs> the most pressing sin. That's a really good autobiography title, if you think about mm. the most pressing sin at the time. Ooh. Yeah. Then you could go through what they are in different stages of life. Ooh. Ooh. We, well, we have to edit this out because then someone's going to take it. Right. And find it down the line. Hmm. I know mostly because we've been in a relationship for a long time and have mm-hmm. shared a lot of our life together that this strategy of blocking it out and of ignoring it and looking the other way has not always worked for you. And it's, I can't imagine it would work for anyone, especially considering some of the things people have said and, and suggested to mm. you. And so I, I wonder, I remember in high school, you were, you were fairly stoic. Mm-hmm. You were fairly quiet. Um, I chiseled right through that pretty quick. <laughs> pretty quick. Um, but you, back to the original question, we had, you know, the, the comments. Do you want to talk about those experiences where putting up that shield just wasn't effective and it did get to you yeah so so there have been a few times where just ignoring a person um ignoring a person usually does not keep them from saying a thing right calling a thing out (laughs) after you as you're walking away or uh continuing to talk to you even when you have made it very clear that you're not interested either with a I'm walking away now or stop talking to me or just with your body language. Um, And there have been a couple of instances where I truly did actually feel unsafe um, by comments that were made to me by usually total strangers, mostly total strangers. I remember when I still lived in Texas. We were engaged, not yet married, but I was uh, still living in Texas and I went to withdraw some money from an ATM. It was an outside ATM on the sidewalk. And uh, again, 19 years old, it's summertime in Texas. And and I'm out there, you know, withdrawing my cash. I'm all alone. And this man who had pulled up next to my car got out of his car and was walking up and down the sidewalk and at some point before I withdrew my money he made it a point to say out loud (laughs) and I want to say it like he said it but it's gonna sound weird but he said girl you're wearing them jeans were you the court would like to know wearing them jeans though i had jeans on my body yes (laughs) so it was a factual statement um it was such a strange moment for me one because most of the times i've been hit on before that were from people my own age 
Hmm. This time it was a middle-aged man that I'd never met before, would never see again. Uh, and I knew in that moment that he was looking at my body without my consent. And I realized, like, when you're in public places, people are going to look at other people, you know. But he, he was looking at my body in a certain way that made me very uncomfortable. Sure. And then made it a point to say it out loud. And I had this very conflicting sort of emotion about it because, like I was telling you earlier, I was raised to to want to be attractive, to want to dress attractively, to want to be noticed for attractiveness, and at the same time, to be very responsible for how attracted people were to me and to not let that get out of hand. Yeah. Um, and so in my mind at that moment, I'm thinking like, okay, these jeans look great on me, you know? And on the other hand, I never want to wear them in public again because I am so uncomfortable in this moment. I'm alone. It's broad daylight, but there's no one else around. And I don't know this man. And... There's a huge age difference, a huge, you know, physical difference. Um, and I, I just, not only did I feel uncomfortable, but I also felt unsafe and I wanted to get out of there as quickly as possible. Definitely. Yeah. Um, another instance was shortly after you and I were married, we took my younger brother to a laser tag place. Mm-hmm. Um, this was one of those where they had the laser tag and and some arcade games, I think, inside pizza, all that jazz. And there were a lot of preteen kids there. It must have been the middle of the summer. And laser tag is not one of my favorite things, but, you know, we were we were kidless at the time and, and had oh, all this God. energy. I know. You remember that? I love our kids, but it sounds luxurious. Anyways, anyways. Anyway. But we were around a lot of kids and they were they were on the cusp of being older kids but not quite there yet, you know. Sure. Uh they had a lot to prove to their friends, I think. Yeah. And uh, so we're in this group laser tag, they split people up, they give us the vests, all that. And we go out into this this dark battlefield with the with the lasers and the vests and mm-hmm. um i am at the time much more conservative in the way that that i experience language i guess and i had this habit which i'm sure was very annoying to my coworkers and very annoying to any friends that i had but if i heard cursing I was very quick to say, hey, now, watch your language. And I think I even wagged my finger. I did this to my coworkers. I did this to my friends. It was, at the time, I thought it was very endearing. It probably was not. (laughs) So, um, but, so we're in this laser tag, and and I start hearing these probably 12-year-olds. They're they're running around, and they're shooting lasers at little kids, Right, so this is a mixed group of ages, and as they're running around shooting lasers, they are cursing up a storm, <laughs> and it's 
you know, it's dark and uh, I know that all these kids who are in here and probably without their parents are hearing these older kids, you know, using all of this, this vulgar language and it, and it rubbed me the wrong way. And so I put my, my wagging finger to use and I found them and I said, hey guys, let's watch our language around the kids, okay? Because I'm older than them and I should be able to say that. That doesn't sound like unreasonable or strangely conservative to me. Sure. Okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just remember it being a habit and that's why I didn't feel, you know, out of my lane to say something like that to stranger kids. But Sure. Um, yeah, so I wag my finger at them and it's it's dark. They can't see me. I am short and thin at the time and probably look like someone just a couple years older than them. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, the reaction that I got from these 12, 13 year olds after I said that to them was they looked around for a minute to see who said it and then they turned to each other and the shortest one of them said to the others, let's rape her. And then the other two, I think there were three, they were like, yeah. And then they kind of split up. I don't even think they came in my direction, but I wasn't about to st sit around and find out. Sure. Right. And I had never had someone say something like that to me. I didn't think they were going to do that. Yeah. Probably not capable. Probably not capable. But even even knowing those things, mm -hmm. I had a very fearful reaction. And I found myself a corner to go into, and I waited till the lights came on, and then I tried to find you, and then we, together, after I told you about this, we found the, um, you know, the people running the thing, and they made this whole little speech about, you know, behavior before the next go-round. But... That, I was so shooken up by, shaken up? Shookton. Hmm. I was... Shaked. I was so shaken. Oh, there you go. That's it. Thank you. By just the fact that that came out of their mouths, right? And and that it was not a thing they thought twice about. Um, probably not a thing they intended to do, but, like, that was their response to me trying to correct them. Yeah. And if some 12-year-old boys can have that reaction, and I know they got it from somewhere, whether that's video games, whether that's their parents or their parents' video games or whatever. Well, it's not playing video games. No. I've never said anything like that. Well... And I've always played video games. At the time, I thought maybe it had something to do with violent video games. <laughs> ah, okay. So at the time... So, yeah. Okay. Um... And I don't even still really know how to process that experience, except that it was just, it felt very scary, even though it was just words, you know, but I was in a very vulnerable position, um, being by myself and everything's confusing because you don't know where you are in a maze <laughs> that's set up for laser tag. So, hmm. yeah. It reminds me mm -hmm. when, when you, I... 
obviously, had been a a young preteen and teenage boy before. And although that's shocking and inappropriate and horrifying, it's not the worst thing I've heard mm. or heard someone say. And although I've never said that to anyone, I haven't been far off. And some of my language just in I'm now I'm doing air quotes mm-hmm. between the boys. Sure. Um, and it was always humor and it was always shock value. And it was always this attempt to have this, you know, sort of smug, edgy camaraderie mm. with with the other guys. Um, and I wonder I, I'm reminded of of when when the president had his tape get leaked. Yeah. And when he when he admitted on tape to to what was essentially you know, the worst end of sexual assault to to perhaps even into rape. Mm-hmm. And it was brushed off as, well, he didn't mean it. Like that locker was locker room banter. Locker room banter. Mm-hmm. And perhaps these kids, when they're reconciling this with themselves, with their parents, they're saying, I didn't mean that, obviously. Mm-hmm. This is just how me and the boys joke around. Yeah. And how does it make you feel as a woman when when that is the explanation given for words? <laughs> um, I mean, it's an unacceptable excuse, first and foremost. And, you know, to use the example of that, that tape that was leaked in 2016, I guess, I was so appalled by that language. Mm-hmm that and i knew i just knew that everyone would be appalled by it or you thought i thought i knew i thought i knew so much that i had some hope that the men in my family that i was very close to would hear that language and think this is not a person that we want representing our country and this is this is not to get political this is just when I heard that, I thought, there's no way the, you know, the Christians and the conservatives that I know are going to let that slide. Mm-hmm. There's no way. But when I brought that up in conversation with some male family members, I heard a lot of what you just said. That's, I mean, that was a private conversation. That's kind of just how guys talk. I've heard worse. And there is something to be said, I think, about the way that it has become acceptable for men to find camaraderie with other men by using that kind of language or by bragging about sexual exploits or bragging about things that may or may not have happened, you know, I read something in one of my classes about the initiations that men go through Hmm. uh, socially, and they talked about the hunt, right? So so men, this particular, uh, I wouldn't call it a study, it was more like a, someone who was following a certain group of of college-aged men. Uh, to parties and that kind of thing and and talking to them about something called the the hunt where they there were all these sort of 
unspoken rituals, you know, getting ready for a night on the town where they, they would dress up and they would make sure they smelled good and they would this, that, and the other thing. Uh, and they would talk each other up. They would be each other's wingman. They would, um, and they would go out looking for women to sleep with, essentially. But they talked about how the hunt was not to actually end up in somebody's bed. It was more a, like, a social event where all of the posturing and all of the bravado and all of the, um, you know, standing out and trying to outdo the other one in what they were willing to do or, or how they were willing to approach a woman, you know, with really awful behavior, that was all for each other. That was all for show in order to be a part of the group, if that hmm. makes sense. And so that's, and so I forget all the terminology that was used in that, but I think that reminded me a lot of that whole locker room banter excuse, right? This is just how guys talk. And my thinking is, well, it's not how guys should talk. <laughs> Find better things to talk about because the way, if the way that you talk in private the way that you expect each other to talk in private and the way that you encourage each other to talk in private is degrading to other human beings. Mm -hmm. There's no excuse for that being okay. When I was in middle school, in high school, this was circa 2002 to 2008, this is a period of time where there was a lot of films being released. Mm. And I, I remember quite clearly the types of films that myself and my young male friends and my, my cousins mm -hmm. loved. They were so funny. But a lot of them, you couldn't, like, my family couldn't know we were watching them. Like, but they, sure. were, they were the movies to see. And I remember this, this one movie... And it was very popular, and it still remains very funny, many parts of it. But like a lot of movies made during that time period, it can't be made today. Sure. It absolutely could not be made today. What uh, was the movie? Wedding Crashers. Oh. With Owen Wilson and, and Vince Vaughn. The opening sequence of this film is these two characters traveling from wedding to wedding that they haven't been invited to. Mm-hmm. Um, flirting with the bridesmaids. And then this montage of topless women falling onto beds, big smiles plastered on their face, mm -hmm. one after the other, different women constantly, and these guys are best friends. Mm -hmm. And their conquest, like what you were talking about, yeah. is a conquest to lay these women. Sure. If, if, to use that term. Um, to use layman's terms. To use... <laughs> <laughs> yes. Keep that joke, please. <laughs> um, and I remember thinking that was a standard to live up to as mm. a young man. And I remember also thinking, A, that's incredibly intimidating. Hmm. B, it's funny. And now I can say these jokes to make up for this way that I am not. And C... It made me think about the girls around me in that way. Mm -hmm. And maybe, like, it's not fair for me to blame Hollywood 
for for my own thinking of the girls around me. But in in my very not entirely, but that has not entirely, a, but it was effect, a component right? of yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. It it was it was me thinking that manhood mm-hmm. in relation to women meant that they were a sexual exploit mm-hmm. and not that you could necessarily be friends with them. And the way that we shared media together as as young men mm-hmm. was through these these experiences. Yeah. And just a few caveats. I was not 18. I shouldn't have been exposed to that. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, are you, how do you stop young people from being exposed to wildly popular movies regardless of the rating? Sure. I think in, in today's world, with the massive accessibility of pornography without education and context mm-hmm. and, and, and explanation would only make it more difficult to for for men to understand how to exist in a world with women. Yeah. And and so that's that's what I think of when when I think of what these jokes and these mm-hmm. these humors that that men engage in is it it does it does root from this way that is a joke and isn't a joke mm-hmm. or maybe maybe it starts as a joke. Yeah. But you say anything enough times in your head and it becomes gospel. Or maybe it doesn't start as a joke. Mm-hmm. And the people are using the jokes as a litmus test for those around them. The same way you same way you and I might, you know, like sneak in a very mild curse word in a conversation to see what the reaction is. Mm. I'm like, all right, are these people safe <laughs> to, sure. to to speak naturally with? Yeah. Um, you do that more than I do. I yeah. Well, you know, I, yeah. I, I think that it's interesting that you and I have come up in such different traditions. Mm-hmm. Um, where you came up, Southern, not a not a Southern Baptist, the denomination, right? But you were an Independent Baptist in the South, mm-hmm. and I was a Roman Catholic in the Northeast. Yeah. And, and my family is very northeastern. They My grandparents still have transatlantic accents. Just very, very New York. Sure. My experience wasn't, wasn't like your experience, obviously, because I'm a man. But it seems to me that the shame that my family dished out mm-hmm. was an equal opportunity shame. Okay. So my sisters and, and my female relatives got a raw deal, mm. obviously. And a lot of the things that you say mm-hmm. um, resonate a little from just just the tidbits that I've picked up on. Sure. Um, from, Which are probably the tip of the iceberg. For absolutely, them. they're yeah. the tip of the iceberg. And I've actually asked a lot of them afterwards, like, what mm-hmm. was your experience? Mm-hmm. And they, they would tell me things like they, they were called... Well, and you don't have to share their experiences because that's their story to share. Oh, well, they would tell yeah. me things that were, were scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My experience as a a boy mm-hmm. coming up in a Northeastern Roman Catholic tradition was that my sexuality mm-hmm. was a stain on my soul. Yeah. And all of my urges and all of my looking at women... All of my thinking about women 
all of it was a was a mark on a chalkboard that could not be erased. Hmm. So when I would when I was coming into my own and I was going through puberty and having a lot of these questions, the questions mm-hmm. themselves were not safe. And so all of this shame built up to where the attraction didn't go away, but the shame built up. Mm-hmm. And so I think that when, when you do something like that, it's almost like clogging an intestine. Okay. It yeah. only makes you sick in a lot of other ways. And I think some of those other ways reflected in the refreshing discourse that I would have with people who were not so shy about these things or didn't Mm. share my shame. Yeah. And so coming out of that shame, I didn't have a healthy explanation for why we should not objectify women. Mm -hmm. I had, we don't even talk or think about that. Yeah. So I couldn't, I couldn't counter someone saying like, hey, yo. Uh, Jesse is a slut. Hmm. And I couldn't come back and say, she's not. Mm-hmm. She's not that. Like, you you accusing people of that mm-hmm. is shaming them for their, for, for their sexual expression. Sure. It's shaming them for something that they don't do. And it's an outdated, antiquated term that only is used to, to demean people. Sure. I couldn't have said that then. And I hope that our sons... Mm-hmm. Are are able to articulate that? Maybe not like that, sure. you know, but in some way. Well, and and maybe just saying like the word itself is demeaning because even if somebody has a lot of sex as a woman, okay. Yeah. And you know that is and and I say that as having a lot of sex is has a double standard for men and women. Absolutely. From a very young age, right? For girls and women, that gets you called all sorts of awful names. Mm-hmm. Having that as boys and men gets you praised. It gets you elevated yes. in the ranks. It makes you popular. It makes you a hero and whatever else. So and it, so going back to your your movie example, right, with the Wedding Crashers and that image of them going on these ex uh, on these sexual adventures <laughs> and exploits mm-hmm. and then having that reaction from women portrayed that way sets very unrealistic expectations obviously sure and um one of the points that was made in that thing i read about you know the girl hunt yeah. was that there's no reason for these college age men to expect that they're actually going to get, you know, to, to have a one night stand because statistically, you know, during this was probably done only like maybe five, eight years ago. Um, women are tend to reject (laughs) advances from men that they meet at a bar or a nightclub or whatever. Um, they, tend to reject them pretty forcefully sometimes, you know? It is not to be expected that somebody is going to to take your advances as you sweeping them off their feet, right? No one is going to really be all that inclined to sleep with you after they have met you one time and you've bought them a drink or you've danced with them a little bit. 
And of course, I'm, I'm speaking from a know-nothing point of view because that's not a thing I've ever done because we got married really young. But my point is, apparently, according to this writer, statistically, that's not a thing that happens very often. So these young men going out to, for that to be there, the end of their night, has really nothing to do with that being the end goal. And like I said, it has more to do with how they present themselves to each other. Hmm. And part of the bonding comes from, you know, the going home where you console each other for not having, you know, ended the night with someone else or or taking points, you know, for how many women you actually got their phone numbers or how many women uh, you danced with or something like that. Right. And. They don't tend to actually get that prize. I'm using air quotes again. Mm -hmm. Because that's not a real ex realistic expectation, and most people actually know that. I don't think I've ever gone on one of these hunts. <laughs> I don't think well, I've... Like, we've been married, like, all of our adult lives. Yeah. And like I said at the beginning, like, we might not be the best qualified to, to speak right. on, on that part, at least. Well, and it might have looked different as a teenager. Or maybe it didn't happen for you as a teenager. I don't know. Maybe they had hunts and they didn't invite me. Oh. <laughs> you didn't get invited to the male ritual. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the prize was never possible. Oh. oh. God damn it. <laughs> like, I know it's not something that you should be sad about. Like, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> oh, no, I didn't get to go to the misogynist party. Oh, right. but I didn't even get invited. Well, that whole party, that whole hunt, that whole mm. ritual needs to change, right? Because it's based on unrealistic expectations and it's based on uh, very sexist ideas that are very dangerous because you're going to have people within the group who maybe don't understand that this is... Um, that this is more about male bonding than it actually is about getting laid. Right. And you're going to have people who feel so left out that they'll do whatever it takes to score those points or. And this is just one example of a male bonding ritual kind of thing. I mean, they don't all look like this. And, and it's not always that, you know, everyone knows that that's unrealistic or whatever. Um, and I'm I'm speaking about it from having read about it. I'm also, I'm not a man. I've never experienced any sort of bonding activity like that. So a question I would have then for you, because... Oh, this, is, this isn't something that normally happens on the podcast. Oh. A question for me. Let's hear it. A question for you. Let's see if it's a good one. You might not have experienced something like... Like what I'm describing, right? Like this, this night on the town, you know, nightclub type thing. Sure. But you do remember hearing things, you know, and, and even saying things with other guys. What do you feel like was the motivation for that? The motivation, I think, for for engaging in these sexist, destructive modes of of camaraderie was just that it was trying to form a bond mm -hmm. and it's very hard for men to form bonds in a society where they can't talk about real things that affect them and mm. i feel like 
every episode has been about this. Mm-hmm. But when you're not allowed to express the full spectrum of your humanity with the people that you share you, your humanity with, then I think that humans instinctively look for contrast. Mm-hmm. They look for size. They look for lines in the dirt. I think that technology has only made this a bigger problem. Mm. I think that as we, and and I say this, and I'm like, okay, well, the 1950s were actually really bad about this. But in our context, in the way that we experience sexism, which is mm-hmm. different from the way the 1950s experienced it, I think it's it's divided us. It has made us polarized in a lot of ways. And we don't sit around and talk about our sorrows. Mm-hmm. We don't sit around and talk about our regrets. And we don't sit around and talk about those unmanly things. That someone re- has told you was unmanly. That someone has told you was unmanly. Mm-hmm. We don't sit around and cry with one another. Not frequently enough. And... So the thing that you do to bond with someone is you suppress it all mm-hmm. and you find a common thread. To objectify. To objectify. It, you can be objectifying. Mm-hmm. You find you find a common enemy. You find a a something that you can sit around a table and high five your bros about, okay, we are in sync on this thing. Mm-hmm. We are in sync. I think that's why men love to tell jokes as frequently as we do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it comes from a place of guardedness a lot of the time. Um, and, and it comes from a place of, of entertaining each other and building a bond where other bonds are not acceptable. Mm. I think that the syndrome that you're talking about, I don't know what to call it, but mm-hmm. it the sexual syndrome, um, I don't know what to call it. Mm-hmm. But basically, it's a thing where women, like you said, are made responsible for for not only their sexual behavior, but the sexual behavior of the men around them. Mm-hmm. And so then the men get none of the education, which is made even worse by a deliberate lack of sexual education yeah. from professional sources. So boys are left with a sexual education that has been passed down from the 1950s where women were basically pigeonholed into a role and mm-hmm. mocked for not being in that role and passed down, passed down. And when science comes out and psychology comes out, the state says, no, we can't talk about this. This is the parents can teach their mm-hmm. kids sexual education mm-hmm. Um and, and sexual relations, which which are also, for some reason, a very political issue. So so that, I think, is, is why I think men do that. Okay. To put it just more succinctly, just, you know, for camaraderie mm-hmm. in the absence of emotional camaraderie. Hmm. And because they don't know any better. That doesn't make them not responsible mm-hmm. for their words or actions, but it at least helps to explain where it comes from and maybe makes the path clearer for helping men to to be better people for the women around them. And it, But it's, yeah. Because saying that, I want to agree with you when you say they don't know any better. 
because they haven't been taught. Because and, and I'm thinking, I'm not thinking of all men. I'm thinking of like middle schoolers, young high schoolers. Mm. Many, many of them do know better. Men in sure. training. <laughs> I know that me and my mm. friends who said these things didn't. Right. Yeah, and and like you said, that that doesn't provide for them an excuse. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that that is now acceptable behavior. But if we just accept that they don't know any better and boys will be boys and this is just what boys talk about. Certainly not. And then and then say, well, and I'm not saying this is what you're saying, but going on on that thread of these young boys, like those young boys in the laser tag who said, let's rape her because that was funny to them. Mm-hmm. And that made them feel powerful in this instance to say they don't know any better. Boys will be boys. That's just what boys do. Let them have their fun. And then to never go and actually educate them with, you know, something better. Mm -hmm. And to put all of that responsibility onto girls because parents are teaching girls how to be careful Mm-hmm. And it's, I I can't say this obviously for every household, every girl, every teenager, and not and, with that attitude, you can't. <laughs> I'm trying not to generalize. Um, <laughs> for me personally, I was taught to be careful. Not so much with my own sexuality. I wasn't really taught to think that I had a sexuality that was never really discussed Hmm. i was very aware of the sexuality of men Hmm. and young boys and aware of the fact that they quote unquote didn't know any better that they couldn't help it and girls mature faster than boys again quote unquote (laughs) that is you know and then it just becomes the responsibility of women to to mitigate those risk factors for things like sexual assault and and rape and of course those are you know those are the extremes but they're also the underlying threat of things like catcalling that we might think are innocent or that are complementary hmm. right um because as a woman you are Along with this idea that men are not in control of their sexuality, that they are, and and I say that as if sexuality is a choice, that's not what I'm trying to say, but this is my rewind motion. Yes, no, I can see it. They can't see it on the podcast. We'll take this part out. What is this we? I have to do all the work. (laughs) Oh, I love you. I love you. Um, Where was I going? So along with this idea that that men's sexual actions are mostly out of their control, um, I was also, and I and I think a lot of women are given the idea that we do have to make men feel good, and if somebody compliments us. We need to be, or opens the door for us, right? Or is chivalrous in some sort of way. We need to be very appreciative of that. And there's something about, like, the male ego (laughs) that we do not want to hurt. 
And there's that underlying threat again, that if we do, if we reject an advance, or if we uh, come across as rude when they were only trying to tell us something nice, or we don't say thank you, or we don't smile or something, um, that there is going to be some kind of consequence. And so, I, so you're taught at both times not to reject advances, but to reject every advance. Like you said in high school, you mm-hmm. you just like cold shoulder it. Mm-hmm. But then you're also warned of the dangers of rejecting a man's advances at the risk of bruising his ego. Well, and I don't even know that I was taught to reject advances. I just knew that they would be coming. And that's what I chose to do was to reject them. I was taught to be careful so that I didn't invite them. Hmm. Right? I wasn't taught how to respond to them. I chose, me personally, to put up that wall and to be cold because I knew they'd be coming and I didn't want to deal with that. And I didn't want to feel the shame of, you know, because I knew that I did not dress in a way that should be inviting those kinds of comments or advances or, or, you know, Hmm. that kind of thing. So you never wanted to put yourself in that position in the first place Mm -hmm. where you'd have to bruise a man's ego. Yeah. Ah, that is interesting. Mm -hmm. And, and that, that brings me to, to, I guess the next topic I wanted to discuss and Mm -hmm. that is chivalry Mm. and, and not middle, you know, 14th century, ages chivalry of course but the sort of the the american male chivalry that that basically sets in place these rules of how men are to treat women Mm -hmm. probably sculpted with positive intentions for the time they were made or the Mm -hmm. time they were thought or the time they were they were worked into the cultural fabric perhaps of perhaps Mm -hmm. let's give let's give this anonymous certainly male person Mm -hmm. the benefit of the doubt and say that they were trying to exact some positivity in a culture. Sure. Because on the surface, it does seem very kind. Mm -hmm. It does seem very polite. And by it, can you elaborate on what you mean by chivalry? Yes. So so the positive aspects. Mm -hmm. What I was taught, one should stand if a woman is standing and there's no available seats, I should give my seat to a woman. Yes. The way I was taught, you just stay standing even if she says, I don't want your seat. Um, So you just suffer. It made for, yeah, (laughs) basically. Okay. (laughs) If you boil it all down this entire episode, it's living with women is just suffering generally. Great. (laughs) But no, that's actually problematic. Yes, Um, it is. But, but, there's that. There's you hold the door open for a woman, mm-hmm. right? Um, you you give to a like in a courtship. You you pay for a woman. Mm. You you ask out the woman. Mm-hmm. You propose to the woman. You do these very set cultural things mm-hmm. for the woman. You take care of the woman. You the walk man. on the on her right side so that she is not right, like on the sidewalk, so that she's not close to the street. Is that a thing? Is it a thing? I've heard that before. Like, I've heard 
that, and we don't do this, but... Should I be doing something? Am I doing something wrong? No. I'm just saying, like, this is one of those little, you know, chivalry rules that I've heard. Maybe I made it up or heard it from someone who made it up. But where the man is supposed to walk along, like, the curb of a sidewalk so that the woman does not accidentally veer into the road where she can get... It's a safety thing, I <laughs> Doctor, guess. she has hysteria. She walked right into traffic. Oh Our God. marriage was not good. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Weird. I have yeah. not heard that. I don't think I've ever heard that before. I think it's a thing. I don't remember who told well, me. Well, I'll have to Google it later. I guess. I'm not going to right now. <laughs> or ever. But, but here, here is... A sort of thing. And this has been an actual problem of mine. Okay. Where, where chivalry has affected me in a lot of negative ways. Um, I presumed that I was the savior mm-hmm. of the women in my life. Yeah. I, and who, who am I telling? Right? <laughs> I know. Like, I'm sitting. Should I bring up the fact that I'm very aware of this? Yeah. But, but my... My thinking was always that it was my job to make sure that you never wanted for anything, Mm -hmm. which on the surface is good. It was my job to make sure that you always were, were someone who had enough. Yeah. On the surface, it's good. Mm -hmm. But I found that in, in trying to provide everything for you, Mm. I was maintaining a disparity of power, A, and I was removing a lot of your agency, mm-hmm. B, I was making life decisions for you um, without even asking you, Yeah, pushing you into things that you had only a tenuous interest in, um, and, and coming home with big news about our lives that you had not signed off on. Hmm. And I thought I was being a good man. Yeah. In my mind, I thought I was being the model husband and that my family would be proud of me for the way that I was treating my wife. And providing. Mm-hmm. And, and providing. Yeah. And I was a provider and and everything. And, and here's what it did to me. Mm-hmm. And then I'll let you... I will allow you then to You'll tell pass you. The mic. I will pass. Yes. <laughs> Great. But you may not touch it, of course. Oh, not right. Not until yes, but it will be my gift to you when <laughs> you have your turn to talk. Oh. Until then, you're so. A generous. woman should be. Zip it. <laughs> <laughs> but but what it did to me mm-hmm. is it isolated me, and it. I always wanted a partner, but I didn't mm. know how to engage in partnership with you. Mm-hmm. So a lot of my fears. And a lot of my struggles and a lot of my anxieties in my career and with money mm-hmm. and with parenting and with everything, I didn't talk about because I didn't want you to worry mm-hmm. because a man doesn't do that. Yeah. I didn't want you to think that anything was wrong, but a lot was. Yeah. And had I only leaned on you, maybe I would have come to these realizations a lot sooner. So how has how have you experienced my um, feeble attempts at chivalry <laughs> um, hurt you? Hmm. Yeah. So this is kind of a growth thing for both of us, I think. Um, 
And I appreciate that it's something that that you are able to recognize in yourself, but I'm certainly complicit in it, you know, to some extent, because of, of the way I was raised, because of, of the gender roles that I was taught were appropriate within a marriage. And I certainly didn't think that either one of us were falling into that. So for my part, I was never given the opportunity to make a lot of decisions on my own. I In our marriage or? Well, before, right? So when, when I was growing up, the things that I was, the way that I was prepared for marriage and not prepared for marriage, because there were a lot of things that just kind of left, that were left untaught, you know, given everything going on in kind of my later childhood. But I did not go into our marriage thinking that you were going to be the sole provider or the the sole decision maker or the person who would tell me where to go and what to do and all of that. And that it never felt like that's what was happening, right, mm-hmm. in the moment. Um, early on, I always felt like we were, we worked really well together. We had a good partnership. We were, you know, both responsible for an equal number of things. And that may have been true sometime in the beginning until we had kids, you know? Yeah. And um, when my tendencies towards uncleanliness made were made much more potent. And so there, at some point it was very obvious that the imbalance of, you know, the things that you were doing versus the things I was doing. And, and that's a whole thing. But I don't think I ever realized how much I just let you Hmm. make the decisions, let you take on all of these things, you know, let you not talk to me about your feelings and, um, and make decisions for me. Like you said, you, you sometimes would make decisions for me, sometimes would encourage me down a path that I wasn't necessarily interested in, but that was sort of how I moved through my entire life up until that point. There weren't a lot of times that I was able to experience paving my own path. Yeah. And it was very easy for me to just let you do a lot of that. So that that's my complicity in that. But I think um, as we've both grown and continue to grow, because it's not perfect yet, right... Um, I don't hold anything against you, (laughs) right? For those things showing up for that savior complex, like being a big part of our early years, um, Mm -hmm. because I definitely was a willing participant in that, you know, that was, that was not a thing I resented (laughs) at all. I probably wouldn't have known what to do without it. Um, but I do think that we've grown out of that to some extent and continue to grow out of it. Going back to the question of chivalry in general, I think the whole idea of it does sound nice on the surface. Yeah. Treating treating women kindly and doing things for them and protecting them and all this. But the underlying piece of it is this idea that women are fragile and precious and in need of a lot of protection. And so that's that's a whole misogynistic thing in and of itself. 
and it bleeds over into other other issues and I know this is not a podcast like for those other issues per se but I think of instances like like the murder of Emmett Till right okay. Emmett Till was I want to say 14 years old um and a black teenager who was accused of making a, a hissing sound or some sort of advance towards a white woman and the response from the community from her husband and his friends when when she went home and told him this was that she needed to be protected and that boy needed to pay for what he did Hmm. um and i feel like i'm i'm messing up some details of that story but the idea that women are always in need of male protection and that they are helpless without us. Yeah. Yeah. Helpless. It makes them like property. Exactly. And that's, yeah, that's just it. It's, it makes them like property. It, it makes them like less than human. Right. And you can make an argument to say like, no, it, we're lifting them up. They're like, they're more than human. They're to be... Our precious jewel. Yeah. And if anyone touches our precious jewel... Yeah, then they'll, there will be hell to pay. But even making someone into, like, superhuman still makes them less human. I know what right? you mean. So if you were to, like, meta metaphorize... Metaf- turn this into a metaphor, <laughs> yeah. right? You could say that if there were a people... And they had a precious treasure Mm -hmm. and they kept it locked up because they didn't want anyone touching their stuff. Mm -hmm. They would be violent when people did. Yeah. But they would also limit what that treasure could could go and do and be and see. Yes. And I, I think that I think that there is like a territorial male tendency to lock the women away Mm. you know and almost certainly almost certainly it echoes from from our our european roots sure and the way that we we have treated you know women in in the darker ages Hmm. i'm not educated about all that to know but i i don't i feel like i would i would challenge the idea that it was the or is a a natural tendency and then oh, I'm certainly not saying it's natural when it comes to yeah. customs mm-hmm. and when it comes to like anthropology and things like that or or how humans practice life very little is quote unquote natural yeah almost nothing we do is natural mm-hmm. um but it's it's one of those things that that I think these attitudes sort of echo through our our oh what's the word it, our cultural memory mm. and they manifest and in like surprising DNA. ways kind of like dna yeah. but but people like to think especially in in the united states and and clayton and i spoke on this recently mm-hmm. when we talk about individualism we like to think especially in a country where all men are created equal mm-hmm. we're not we're not. And I say that because the boy who was born 
to a wealthy insurance CEO is not created as equal as the orphan who will be in and out juvenile hall until he's 18 and finally spends 20 years in prison. Now, do you mean they were not created equal or are they not, they are not treated as if they are created equally? At the time of their inception, mm-hmm. they were not equal. Right. But, but then... They both so deserve equality. Right. But when we say created, right, that's bringing in ideas of a creator. But what is even the function of saying something like that? Like what, why, I don't understand why someone bring that up except to say, Mm -hmm. it's all on you. We were created equal. Why Mm. can't you make any of it work? Sure. Just because we're making it work Mm -hmm. and you're upset about it, just because we denied your parents the GI Bill, even though they fought just as hard as we did, Mm -hmm. doesn't give you the excuse to not succeed where our parents got the GI Bill and were able to start businesses and able to get good jobs and able to pass down wealth and money and then their parents were able to do the same and on Mm -hmm. and on. This is definitely going off on a tangent. Yeah, that's okay. Um, I say all that to say I don't know the right thing to say. I I think Mm -hmm. that the right if we were to fix it it would be too big to begin. It's it's such a large problem and a large question that echoes so much of our culture and our experience. It but being sexism. It, it, it being... being sexism. It mm-hmm. being the way that the way that way that men relate to women in the world, in in our world, in our mm-hmm. in our country, in our life, in our social location. Is we know that it's bad for women. The past five to ten years have taught us that it's bad for women, and we need to continue to work on that really hard. Mm -hmm. But men also need to understand how bad it is for men to objectify women, Mm -hmm. to assume too much of themselves in their relationships, and the effect that their words have on the people around them and the reasons why Mm -hmm. they do it. They may not be for the right reasons. And I I don't know what you could say or do to begin working to fix it, except this, us having this conversation, Hmm. us putting it out to my former seven listeners. (laughs) So we're, we are nearing the end of, Mm -hmm. of this episode. Um, And, and the end of every episode, I always offer my guests to have the last words. So if you were addressing a man who's struggling with understanding their place with women, how to talk Mm. to women, how to relate to women, what would be your short advice? Where I don't know the answer, why don't you offer Mm -hmm. at least a tidbit of wisdom, something that a man might be able to take with him that would help? Mm. I would say that if you are a man who is interested in women and not knowing how to how to talk to them i would say talk to them like they are a person talk to them like you would want someone talking to you um i and and that sounds very simple but 
trying to not give the advice that is talk to them like they are your sister or your daughter or your mother because I don't know how you treat those women in your life and yeah we're human beings and we're complicated but so are you and it's okay to own that and to talk to the other men in your life about your own complications and not just how confusing women are. <laughs> and I would say if, if that's a question that has been, has been bugging you, um, to know that you're going down the right road. And uh, sometimes, sometimes people don't question those things that they have learned at all. So if that's the thing that you are, that you are thinking about and that you are challenging, you know, about your own previous worldview, then that is a good thing and you're on the right path. And the best thing you can do is to listen to women, again, as if they are people. <laughs> Mind Over Manhood is recorded in my basement in Des Moines, Iowa. Music is written and recorded by Albert Harper. Check out his band, Her Name is Karma, and their new single, Never Enough, on Spotify now. Thanks for listening. Catch you later.